my barn like a widow heading for the county seat. It's not dark here yet. I'm just waiting for the bow hunters so I can run them off. They put out licks on my land every summer. When it gets cool, the animals are tame. I've fallen asleep in the trees before. I dreamed someone's horse had wandered out on the football field to graze and I was showing children through a museum. The bow hunters make their boys pull the deer's tongue out barehanded. At dusk, when I hear an arrow coming through my field like a bird, I wonder what men have learned from feathers. The animals wade the creek and eat blackberries. The wind blows through the trees like a woman on a raft. Let's see. Um, well, just right now, I was watching uh, Love is Blind with Kina. Yeah. Um, we just finished that. Oh, yeah? What do you think about it? Uh, the show in general or the season? Either. It's kind of a mindfuck, isn't it? It's well, crazy. yeah. I mean, we're I not think... that far. Sorry, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think I like previous seasons better than this season. Just okay. Be... But you'll see. Um, there's a lot of like... In this season, it seems like there's a lot of production going on. Like, they're yeah. trying to kind of get people to, like, love Triangle a right. little bit more intentionally than they did in the past. Where yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we're, like, uh, just a few episodes into the newest season. But it's weird because, like, the, the, the only other one that I watched, which I feel like is the one that everybody watched, like, was the first one sort of, you know, during lockdown. And I feel like it yeah. was this kind of quintessential, like, COVID document. So it's sort of weird seeing it now, you know, mm-hmm. um, when it's like, you know, obviously it's not like COVID is over, but the situation has, like, changed, right? And the sort of, like, our material relationship to it is different, but the show is still sort of doing the same shtick. Um yeah, I don't know. I can never really like decide how I feel about it. I mean, it's so like over the top in the way that it's like, you know, obviously hyper heteronormative, like hyper focused on like monogamy as 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 the norm. And it's yeah, it's sort of frustrating. I feel like the conceit of it like is really interesting and they just like do nothing with it, you know? I was telling Jane it would be the best show ever if they just were all swingers. That mm-hmm. would make it so much better. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And I feel like it would actually, like, people would want to watch that shit, too, you I know? Would, um, yeah. yeah, that'd be cooler. Uh, you didn't watch the season before this one? Mm-mm, no. Uh, you should definitely do that one. That one's oh, my yeah? favorite, I think. Yeah. It's insane. There's a scene where, I can't remember the name of this woman, but she feeds her dog wine. 
Oh, that's that's the first season. Oh, that's the first season. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so you I saw that one. That. I saw that one. I remember it well. <laughs> Jessica or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was Jessica. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah, it's like it, it's it's weird, like going from. So it's like I mean, Kina and I are diehard fans of of Vanderpump Rules, um, yeah. and the kind of like viewing that that show demands is so different from Netflix reality shows. You know, like. Vanderpump is like I feel like it's a show that like kind of asks to be close read you know like it Mm -hmm. asks like a very close engagement with it and like the way that we watch it we'll watch five minutes of it pause and then talk about it for five minutes (laughs) it's so fucking annoying (laughs) I know I know it's really fucking annoying like Nick Sturm was staying with us recently we were watching tv and he's like what the fuck is wrong with you guys like how do you guys do this but uh yeah that's That's just our 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 double Aquarius vibes I guess you know yeah Um, yeah yeah I've never seen Vanderpump but I feel like it has a it's a steep learning curve. You really got to like start from the beginning and like pay attention to really, whereas like, I mean, the Netflix ones, it's like, you might as well be watching like, you know, like diners, drive-ins and and, and dives. I feel like it's, yeah, they exist in a vacuum. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That's sick. Um, yeah. Vanderpump. I feel like, and I couldn't get into real housewives either. Did you get into that? You know, I like, I I enjoy I mean the only one that I've watched like most of like I've seen bits and pieces of a bunch of them but the only one that I've watched like the majority of it is Real Housewives of New York um and I I like it you know but it's sort of like I feel like if we're going to put it in like Shakespearean terms that's like the Merry Wives of Windsor I feel like it's kind of like a mindless sort of comedy that is like entertaining but just kind of goofy um even though there is drama and there's sort of seriousness, it's just like just total absurdity. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas Vanderpump is more like right now it's like Othello. There's some like crazy shit going on. Uh, But it's also, I mean, I sort of find it more relatable because like on real housewives, it's a lot of people who are just like extraordinarily wealthy and don't have to work and don't have to worry about money. Whereas like, I mean, it's now the people on Vanderpump are like in their, you know, 30s and 40s. But at the beginning, they were like broke 20 somethings working in a restaurant and like humble uh, beginnings. Yeah. And like that (laughs) aspect of it is like a bit more relatable as far as like reality TV goes, I feel like. Um, Yeah. The extravagance of of Real Housewives was always Mm -hmm. like, well, this is entertaining to watch, but it's like, you know, I get it gets played out. Like it I does can, it, it's absurd and then it's just like okay i mean yeah. half of why i like those shows is like the extended sort of like universe of it and the way that it like seeps into a material reality like you know i love following all the people on instagram and like yeah. see like following their like stupid like side project businesses that are like inevitable yeah. failures like the way that it's sort of like that's what's most interesting to me about it you know um oh, yeah, and like for sure that's part of why I love Vanderpump is just like that the fan base is like very devoted to it. And like the red, the subreddit is like just amazing because everybody just, it's like hypercritical of everybody. They're all like, these people are all fucking idiots, but we're like obsessed with them. And it's like a very smart and critical fan base, which anyway, we don't have to talk about Vanderpump rules on your podcast. Supposed to be talking about poetry. Sorry. (laughs) Well, you know, we're back from a hiatus of like, uh, I guess it was like three weeks, maybe. Um, But yeah, Kevin's not with us. Kevin's uh, 
somewhere lost in the streets of New York. So if you guys nice. see him, if you're listening to this, if you see Kevin wandering around New York City, just please direct him back to West Virginia because he's probably sticking out like a sore thumb. <laughs> no, he'll be back soon. But uh, but yeah, I'm really glad that you're on, dude. Yeah, um, I'm stoked to be here. Fucking long-time listener, first-time caller, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, friend of the show for sure. Exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Frank Stanford, and I also wanted to talk about your book, The Prelude. Um, but I was, so you wrote this piece for Jacket. I was reading it earlier. Uh, it mm -hmm. wasn't a dream. It was a flood. Was that in 2015? That's an old one. Yeah. I'm like a, little, a little embarrassed about it now, but yeah. <laughs> Why are you embarrassed about it? I think oh, it holds I don't up know. well. Thanks. I mean, there's like aspects of it that I like, um, but it was sort of like the first like quote unquote like serious critical thing I ever wrote, you know, I was like, yeah, I think a first year grad student in my yeah. MFA program when I wrote it. Um, and it's like, there's things about it. I like, um, I definitely like read Stanford a bit differently now than I did then. But one thing that I am sort of proud of is like that. I like very self-consciously spend no time, like, whatsoever talking about his biography and like just focus on the poems and that's sort of why I wrote it um just because you know he's he's somebody I love but has this <clears throat> very you know like a he's very overdetermined by his persona and the kind of like tragedy around him um mm -hmm. I feel like often attracts more uh attention than the work itself um, yeah for sure and when we were talking about this earlier it's it almost seems like his work can never just exist for and be interesting and good on its own merit. It has to be, you know, included in this biography of tragedy or love triangles, speaking right. of love triangles, you know, um, right. Totally. Or, and, or something yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I'm, I don't exactly know how I feel about it. I mean, you know, for, for the listeners out there, we were talking about the thing in the New Yorker that Lucinda Williams, um, who had a relationship with Stanford, uh, she just wrote sort of about Stanford. And um, I, I say this having not read the piece in its entirety, because um, it just dropped. But yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I've noticed that in these sort of like attempts to like make Stanford's work like legible in the mainstream context. Like I'm thinking about that article, um, mm -hmm. but also um, there's an article in NPR that I think was like better, but that was, you know, that was like oh, quite a while ago, but there was also one that I just, I, ac I, I actually like talk about a bit in my, my, my dissertation, which is like this really, cringe-inducing uh article in men's journal called booze guns and poetry like the life oh, of I frank stanford or something yeah. like yeah which i just find like like fucking offensive as shit honestly um or, or just reductive you know um yeah. like really reductive um if you're interested in like you know like hyper-masculine poetry and like booze and guns and shit there's like tons of people that you could read you know like it's like that that's not doesn't even get to the essence of what's interesting about stanford whether or not it's true you know um yeah, for, for one sure. thing um but it also just like reinscribes this super like masculine like uh you know vision of like the tortured artist who has takes lots of lovers and like kills himself and like is a genius you know um yeah for which, sure and, and yeah that 
yeah and it's annoying how how that kind of happens how how did you get interested in stanford because you wrote about him like you mentioned your dissertation you're yeah. also you know probably source of inspiration mm -hmm. when did that kind of start for you yeah so um yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to sort of talk about my own. I think this is true for a lot of people. And I think why, you know, why his work has this kind of like response and this kind of readership that it's both fascinating, but kind of fraught at the same time is it's I think it's very hard for people to talk about him in ways that like are divested from the personal. And like for me, certainly, I definitely fall victim to that. Like he's a poet that was kind of like the perfect poet for me to read at this, this specific point in my life. Um, I like, um, so I did my, my undergrad in upstate New York, um, at Hamilton college and sort of, uh, got, you know, got really into the writing poems when I was an undergrad and the kind of poetry that I was primarily exposed to was, um, this kind of like James Wright model of like narrative exposition through space and again epiphany so like james wright it was a benchmark but also folks like larry levis um robert penn warren james dickey um obviously these are like you know very different writers and it'd be reductive to say that they all do that but like my kind of understanding of what poetry was was that it was like a storytelling device that kind of built up to epiphany and um you know, as somebody who had grown up in, in rural Vermont, in a very rural place, I, you know, was sort of seeing my own experience, like, reflected in this this art by, you know, folks like Robert Penn Warren, um, who, who were writing about the, the rural South in this particular kind of way. And I identified with it and was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, this is uh, the artistic medium for me. Um and then things sort of started changing by the time I was done with college. Um, I already was sort of like, I this feels like a limiting way for me to write. Um, paired with the fact that um like um, you know, my, my hometown was pretty much like destroyed by Hurricane Irene. Um, and the opioid crisis, you know, by 2012 was in full swing. I had lots of friends who were like overdosing or killing themselves it was just like this kind of uh pastoral idea i'd had of my youth is very quickly um becoming mired in tragedy and the way that i'd been writing about it like felt sort of complicated um you know i'd really like i i really i discovered like joel mcsweeney's work um and her idea of like the necro pastoral really spoke to me and really forced me to think differently about how i've been writing about rural space um so anyway, I got into the University of Mississippi for my MFA program, which is like the absolute perfect place to be if you want to write like shitty Robert Penn Warren knockoff poems or, or like it was in, you know, 2013 when I started there. Please, I hope nobody's listening to this. Uh, uh, I need a job someday. Um, but uh, yeah, it was like it was an environment where like that was clearly I'd got in for writing those kinds of poems. And that was like what I was expected to be doing i i think by by some of the faculty anyway um yeah not all of them there were some great people there too i want to be clear um but yeah during this time um somebody told me i should read frank stanford um and i i did and it, it just like totally for me it was you know i mean well i was i had this kind of like backgrounds of you know the kind of robert penn warren james dickey type thing i i suddenly was around 
all these other MFA students were on the other end of the of the spectrum. Like I was like, oh, like conceptual poetry is a thing. Um, you know, I have people wrote, writing these like, you know, kind of Jory Graham type poems. I got like, you know, these people who read tons of surrealist poets in translation, um, like all of these different uh, ways of thinking about poetry. It was like a pretty aesthetically heterogeneous space. And that was really exciting. Um, and I wanted to adapt to that, but it still felt like important to me to sort of like be true to like my roots and sort of like why I got excited about poems in the first place. And Frank Stanford for me was like the perfect writer for that um, because he thinks about rural space in a deeply complex, deeply nuanced way, a deeply networked kind of way. I think mm -hmm. um, it's very much rooted and, you know, grows out of um, a rich lived experience in the geographies that he's writing about, but it's not this kind of uh, naive representation of the rural that shuts it off from like the networks of you know particularly you know the the way that mass media and the rise of the interstates and these kinds of uh you know network changes in sociality that that happened in the second half of the 20th century in the u.s the way that they reshaped what rural space looked like and you know unlike a lot of other writers that i you know i was previously reading um he was not in invested in like kind of producing this like pure idea of what the rural was um yeah. so that really spoke to me um and he also is like a writer who i think fundamentally i, I would argue like i mean even if he's not directly narratively oriented there is a strong narrative streak to what he's doing like the battlefield yeah. where the moon says i love you that is an epic poem you know in the epic tradition um, which is fundamentally a narrative tradition, right? Um, mm -hmm. For sure. It's yeah, fasc and, it's fascinating yeah. because you were in in the piece. You also push back against the surrealist kind of element of it too, which we'll talk about in a second. But in terms of writing narrative poems, it must be so nice to like be one of those poets who like can find a nice neat ending, like 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 uh robert pin warren or like james Rapp, yeah. you know it's like but, I mean, but there's just some point in i think in life and i think stanford does a good job where things are just like should be allowed to be messy and one of the things that like he is narrative i would say he's probably a primarily narrative i would agree yeah. with you but it's so different than any of those other guys just because I mean, I, I will say like, I don't want to shit too much on those guys and to be clear. Like, I think there's all kinds of, I mean, I think a lot of their, their poems are deeply like racist and homophobic and misogynistic and everything else. So I don't want to lionize them, but at the same time, like, uh, I mean, you know, James Dickey wrote a blurb for a Frank Stanford book. Um, yeah, totally. I don't, I I've seen that quoted somewhere and I know that Stanford was also a Dickey fan, Dickey fan as well. Um, and like, certainly like mid career and late career Dickey stuff, he gets super weird. And like, I mean, that, that thing that you're saying is that it's like, you know, you can't easily assimilate life to narrative form. Like there is no kind of simple ending to it. Right. Like, I think they knew that. Right. And they, yeah. they grapple with it. And it's in the same way that they kind of know, I think fundamentally that like their hyper-masculinity is also a bullshit farce. And like, I think, and they're not doing it consciously, but I think that's like where, like I, I love Robert Penn Warren's writing and I love James Dickey's writing like because of those moments where like they become aware of their own limitations and those things are visible but I think Stanford is much more in control of those limitations and had like a clearer um a clearer framework for for thinking through them but sorry I think I cut you off no no I think that's good I was just gonna say that I think it it 
the way that Stanford deals with like, I don't know, that kind of messiness is yeah. almost in a line by line kind of way, or mm -hmm. even, yeah, I would say line by line. And then maybe Dickie and Warren do it in a way that's like, I haven't read enough of them to kind of know, but maybe it just exists over a certain amount of poems, you know, or maybe it's in that book. I don't know, but they are still, I guess, thinking about that on a similar wavelength. I mean, like you said, Stanford yeah, was influenced and, by these guys. So, I mean, I think one of the, the big differences is maybe a generational one, you know, I mean, Stanford, sure. you know, he loved film. He like ran a short lived experimental movie theater in fucking Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And he writes about like both avant-garde film, like sort of like art house stuff, but he also writes about just like golden age Hollywood stuff. It's all over. I mean, like he is not, he's no stranger to like popular mass media art, right? Like that's something that I think he embraces in his work. Uh, totally. And, you know, it's no mistake that like, uh, you know, the final lines of Battlefield are about like making a movie and then, and then it ends, right? Like it, like, I, I feel like he's, he's thinking about like the limitations or like possibilities of what like narrative looks like in text, like through the lens of like the golden age of Hollywood cinema. Right. Um, yeah. And th there's a, like that. Yeah. I read a quote that I guess he lived in New York city for a little bit. I didn't yeah. know that, but he, he, he apparently wrote a letter to someone that was like, I lived in New York long enough to go to the movies, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> I've never read that one actually. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's in the book, uh, hidden water, hidden water. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. I love the letters with Alan Dugan in that one. Yeah, all those letters are really sick and really funny. Yeah. My favorites are the rejections that he gets from, oh, yeah. like, uh, or or the acceptances that he mm -hmm. gets in like Seventeen magazine. There's a Frank Stanford. Poem oh yeah, yeah, that was his first poem. Was in Seventeen, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, part of why I'm sort of fascinated by him. I mean, like the kind of like mythology around his work that you know, focuses so much on like his biography is, I mean, I, he, he set us up for that, right? Like, I, I think he self-consciously constructed this mythology around himself. Like, if you look at his biography notes and his books, he'll say he was born in different places. Um, and it, it's very like, uh, you know, the, the poet and scholar Adam Walton, like, constructed this really amazing biography of Stanford through a lot of primary research but it was it was tough work because Stanford like really mystified his own past in a very explicit way and I think kind of wants you to read him as this like uh rural savant who is like mm -hmm. outside outside of uh you know the forces of modernity or whatever but like what interests me about Stanford is like when you get down to it, it's like I don't know that he would even have a readership if he hadn't lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is like a college town, right? Like, and it allowed him to meet people like Alan Dugan and Alan Ginsberg by virtue of them coming to town for readings, right? And I mean, obviously, that's where he met C.D. Wright. Um, as much as like we like to think of him as this poet who is like, you know, outside, you know, the the institutions of poetry, which you know he was in a certain sense. It's like you know, he had, uh, you know, several degrees of removal from the the academic poetry scene. And um, that's, that's sort of what's interesting to me about him is like the those competing forces between like, his desire to kind of like place himself outside of like Pobiz of like the, the 1970s, but 
um, you know, the, the way that the only reason that we know his work is ultimately because of someone like C.D. Wright, who was like highly successful within, you know, mainstream poetry, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, she kind of dedicated her her life to getting his work read. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's sort of how I think about it. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is curated by him, like you mentioned, and how much of it, too, was like just him because he was like kind of struggling with identity because he was adopted, I guess. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then and then also like I wrote. Well, his name was Francis, but Battlefield has a character named Francis, right? Mm -hmm. The speaker mm -hmm. of the poem. Yeah. And then that kind of name uh, kind of and, and then also move in different places and stuff like that. I wonder how much of that kind of built on his sense of totally confusion, totally maybe i mean the sort of like you know classic biographic reading of him is that you know I, I think adam walton says that like battlefield was like a quest for origins right and i think that is certainly like a persuasive way to to think about it it's like an epic journey to figure out like okay where you're actually from and i think you know some of the both interesting and like troubling aspects of, of his work and the way that he engages with race in his work, I think are related to that too, you know, like um, his own like ambiguous relationship to his own racialization. Cause he's not, he's not sure. He's not sure like whether he's white or not. And I think mm -hmm. like that um, is definitely a persistent tension in his work that, that shapes how we read it for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't entirely know what to do with it because I, I think Stanford is a fantastic poet. I think he's an underread poet. Um, you know, he's probably, if I had to pick like the poet who's had, and he's probably the poet who's had the largest effect on my my life and the way that I think about poetry and the way that I think about being a poet in the, wor in the world. But like, I don't, he's somebody, I don't think I would even like him if I met him in person, you <laughs> yeah. know, like he's not somebody that I want to emulate. Um, I don't, I don't want like another Frank Stanford, even though like his work has been super important to me. Yeah, totally. I, I get that. He was definitely influential to me as well. I think, uh, interestingly enough, I found him in grad school too. Like, yeah, I had no idea who Frank Stanford was. And then I had this professor who was a big narrative guy, like, yeah, wrote pretty much prose poems and uh, turned in a poem for workshop. And he was like, Oh, you got to read this one. I think he sent me like one of the more anthologized Stanford poems, like mm -hmm. the like maybe it was the Arkansas prison system one or something like that, okay. you know, like one of those that's on poetry right. or whatever. But yeah, I just remember it kind of blew me away. Like I was, whenever I was reading him for the first time, I was, I think I was reading like singing knives or something. And I was yeah. just like, what is going on with the moon? Like the moon yeah. is everywhere in here. What totally. You, what's going, what do you think? Like there are two things when I think of Stan Stanford and I was reading him this week I don't know. Like whenever the weather gets hot, I just think of Frank Stanford too. Like when it yeah. gets warm in the South, I'm like, yeah. damn. Cause I can feel humidity in his work. Right. Like it feels yeah. like it's hot as shit and it feels like it's dark at night in every yeah. Frank Stanford poem. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but, but whenever I was reading him, I was like, what is going on with the moon? So I like charting that, but you've read more than me of Stanford. So what do you think? What was his, do you know anything about like his kind of obsession with the moon? You know, I, I, I'd have to get back to you on the moon. I don't know about that, but I will say like what you're describing, like the kind of like the locality of his work was like really important to me as like, like a Yankee living in Mississippi, quite honestly, mm -hmm. you know, like there was something really wonderful about like reading landmarks in his poems, like, you know, many of which 
um, particularly the stuff in Battlefield and a lot of the stuff in the Singing Knives is like on the Mississippi Delta. And like, I could just like go to those places, you know, like he has a line in the Singing Knives where he says, I dove down in Moon Lake and I went to Moon Lake and it's this beautiful <laughs> lake on the Mississippi Delta. And just like seeing shit like that was, was really amazing. Um, and yeah, I don't have uh, an answer for what the moon meant to him. But one, one thing I always think about in conjunction with the moon and his work is the, uh, the, uh, the filmmaker Stan Brackage has this short film. I think it's called the stars are beautiful. Um, and it's sort of an atypical film for him because it's more uh, oriented around like the narration than it is around the visuals, but in it, he's sort of like describing this different way of metaphorically thinking about the stars and the moon. And he says, you know, maybe the uh you know maybe uh the moon and the stars is god taking pity on smokers and the moon is like the end of the cigarette and the stars are the ashes or maybe the night sky is a carcass and like the the moon is a hole and like the stars are maggots and it's just like i mean it's like it just you know it circles around the moon and the stars but it also feels so in the spirit of frank stanford to me you know like like those yeah. works are always like really inseparable in my brain even though it's like highly possible that <laughs> neither of them knew about each other um but yeah yeah i think stanford would have liked that too he's oh no doubt cool yeah stuff with the moon the moon's always totally different yeah um yeah i really i really uh, I mean, it's also like, I feel like one of the reasons I've sort of latched on to him is he leans into the kind of like romantic vision of like what the poet is, you know, like in like just an over the top kind of fucking way um, oh, in yeah. a way that feels like, you know, uh, incommensurable with like what what you know the highly institutionalized idea of like poetry was in the academy in the 1970s it even feels far removed from like you know kind of like deep image stuff in a certain kind of way like it feels more like kind of radical and and unhinged and like you know what is the the romantic if not like writing shit about the moon you know um, yeah so i think there is that kind of element as well for sure for sure that's really smart i hadn't thought about it like that but that's exactly it because there's also that moment i think he's writing to dugan in in a letter and he like he's talking about his job as a land surveyor and he's mm -hmm. like, and he like orients himself inside a lineage of poets who are also like land surveyors like oh he's shit i remember that one yeah 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 yeah, yeah so, i mean th th that is so interesting also when you think about how engaged his work is with like scale and geographic scale and how much like uh you know the the effects of like cold war infrastructure and like the rise of a kind of like networked culture of uh you know eventually like neoliberalism um like and, and and the rise of of mass media like there's so much thinking in his work about the relationship between locality and scale so like being a land surveyor i feel like is like the most granular literal way of thinking about space and scale right mm -hmm. um yeah. pretty interesting shit and doing that like within the context of his work, but also right. in, like the length and capacity of what he's able to kind of include. Like Stanford is one of the few people I feel like who can do a fucking long poem and kill it. Yeah. And yeah. then also do like a three line poem and kill it too, or one line poem or whatever he's got. I mean, I will be honest. I'm, I'm so partial to the long stuff. Um, and I was, uh, I was in Buffalo reading recently and I, uh, 
was talking to Aiden Ryan, who uh, edited, he edits like Foundling Press and did the, the Constant Stranger anthology of like works after Frank Stanford. And it's just, you know, an all around great person and poet and, a, and another Stanford head and like a kind of an advocate for Stanford's work. Uh, but he like floated this theory by me. He'd heard that. So I don't know if you know this, but like, um, so originally the really big long poem that Stanford was writing was called Francis and the Wolf. Um, I think is what it was called. And Battlefield was just like a chunk of that, which like that, I, you know, it's the same with like uh, the, you know, Wordsworth and the prelude is like the chunk of the larger thing. I love like that. The, I'm a sucker for an unfinished epic, you know, um, but apparently a lot, you know, some people think that a lot of Stanford short poems are actually just like chopped up pieces of the longer thing that didn't get published. No, and no. that it was like a mercenary thing. He's like, you know, if I'm going to publish in, in, in journals and like, you know, have a readership, I need to write short poems, um, which as a maximalist is something I feel all the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, Not that I'm like, not that my writing is anywhere near his, his, his quality or whatever, but um, yeah, it is. That is a point of identification for me is like the, the need to kind of tame your shit for the market. But... Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that, but that's a cool theory. I'd buy it. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if Aiden buys it. I'd have to, to <laughs> ask him. Um, He just like brought it up kind of offhanded. And I was like, oh, shit, like that kind of I mean, I, I've definitely. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I love I love all of his work, but like Battlefield for me, like that is the one thing where I'm like this is there's nothing else mm -hmm. in like. 20th century U.S. literature that is like this, whereas like the short poems I think are fantastic, but they remind me of like other poets, you know. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. maybe it's not it a is, bad thing, but yeah, it is yeah. distinctly Stanford to yeah. to do that for sure. That's really cool. I'm just thinking about maybe I, I've never read Battlefield, so I, I've got what? to do. I know, I know. I've just never. I mean, really... it's it's an undertaking. You want to hear something really embarrassing? Let's uh, do it. That's yeah, what the another, podcast is for. Yeah, another reason I'm embarrassed about that thing I wrote for Jacket 2 in 2015 is I hadn't even finished Battlefield at the time that I wrote it. <laughs> making these like, grandiose claims. Yeah, Mark. I know, making these grand... I mean, I you know, I did my best. That shit is long. Yeah, and like, dude. And I'm a slow reader. I mean, it took me on and off about five years to read all of it. Um, I believe so. it. It's a, it's a slog, I bet. And even in that, like you talk about all of the like macro narrative and also even just the narratives that exist inside his work on a line mm -hmm. by line yeah. basis, man, that's so much to just kind of wrap your head around there too. And he was also like remarkably young, I guess, when he started it, not when he finished it. Yeah. Cause he, cause he yeah. Worked. that's kind of fascinating too. Um, yeah. Just as like a marker of youth, maybe at parts of it. I don't know. Um, totally. I mean, it's like, yeah, I don't know. As I've gotten, older i feel like my relationship to it has has changed you know like i will confess that like at a younger age you know before i had a kid before you know i don't know before i like found my my way in the world i guess i was like there is like this attraction to this like you know burnout young like produce mm -hmm. this crazy over a kind of thing um i was never going to do that obviously uh but that aspect time. of it yeah there's still time <laughs> I'm I'm past 29 now. Sadly, it's too late now. Uh, but no, it's just like uh, that that aspect of him is like a lot less interesting to me as I get older. I gotta say, and there's other things that I find more interesting. Yeah, that's the great thing about his stuff. And apparently, uh, he has a novel manuscript. I saw. I don't know if if he would just say that in his letters to people when he would submit his work. But I remember reading in like a rejection that was like. 
oh, you know, oh yeah like, like oh this is great i can't wait to see what you have and then the last line is you have a novel question mark and i don't know if this was like oh yeah no i saw thing. that yeah i mean i know he has he has a book of short fiction that i think is uh lost roads i think had it out at one time and i think a bunch of it is collected in his um in what about this like that the collected that copper canyon put out um but yeah, I don't, I've never read any of the short stories. I don't, I don't feel a huge desire to honestly. Um, I, I love Frank Stanford, but I'm definitely not like uh, my, my love for him is not on the level of some folks I've met where it's like, they need to read every single word he ever wrote. And like, mm -hmm. I, I love the stuff I read by him. He's really important to me, but um, there, there is a limit for me. Reading fiction is where I draw the goddamn line. I'm not reading a fucking short story. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yes, I am, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't care who wrote it. No, I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm trying to get better about it, but yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's hard. It's like, it, it's, it's just, I mean, this sounds insane and maybe lazy, but it's like, if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read fiction, I want to read somebody who's like dedicated their life to that art form um, yeah. rather than Stanford. He was a fucking poet, you know, and he yeah. knows it, you yeah. know, um, for sure. For sure. There, yeah. there, there was that film at one point um, that was going to be done about him, like a documentary. Which... I feel like uh, Matt Hendrickson was involved in it at one point. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I remember this. I but forget I this. Happened. I forget this guy's name. I met the guy at the the frank stanford fest in 2018 um who was doing that i'm blanking on what his name was um i think it was called you the documentary yeah no well you was one of his books um i think it was also titled was it called you okay. i could be wrong i feel like there was a trailer i saw at one point on youtube that was yeah i've seen it. the trailer um yeah i don't know um well we can only hope i mean i feel like the the, the stanford you know uh it wasn't a dream it was a flood that was the name of the documentary like or the film he put out right yeah like, yeah that's yeah. right yeah also was... it's also the uh the the epitaph on his gravestone that's right yeah that's sick what a powerful phrase mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you have it tattooed on you so the legacy continues oh i have it tattooed on me it's that's present right. tense my dude yeah uh but yeah it is like I don't, did, I ever, did I ever tell you the story about like visiting his his grave? No, I don't. Oh, think it was so. wild. I mean, for me, it like epitomizes like what I find most fascinating about Stanford, which is not just the work, but the sort of like culture around it and like the kind of communal obsession with him. I find so interesting. So he was um, he's buried at this like you know this this boys school in like this, this private religious school, um, in, uh, Subiaco, Arkansas, you know, totally middle of nowhere, like extremely rural. Um, there's no reason that you would, you would be there except for the, the school, you know, and across from the, so, you know, I went there with Kino and I was sort of doing my little, you know, when I was in the depths of my Stanford obsession, we did a little like road trip where we went to all the landmarks that he mentioned. And we went to Eureka Springs because I wanted to like see where he wrote Battlefield and sort of the landscape that was shaping that. Um, so we stopped in Subiaco, um, which, you know, also Lucinda Williams in her song Paniola, she mentions, she says Subiaco Cemetery is where we lay him down. It's like her her line and her song about Stanford. Uh, and yeah, it's this kind of like unassuming cemetery on the opposite side of this highway from this boys school. Um, and, and like when we pulled up to like go to his grave, there was like this other woman who was leaving his grave. Um, 
and we like made eye contact and I should have said something to her and I didn't. And she gets in her car and drives away. And I like go to the grave and she like left a note there um, on the grave along with like a bunch of like orange peels and shit. It was like pretty wild. Um, and to this day, I'm like, shit, is that like somebody that is that like a poet whose name I know? That might be somebody yeah. I know through the Internet, you know, like you should Craigslist misconnections. I know. This, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but it's just like that aspect of it is like kind of kind of beautiful to me, you know, and I think like I, I love his work, but like I think what. I gained the most from reading him and sort of like living with his work is how much it can teach about like being a poet in the world, you know, like the mm -hmm. fact that anybody knows his work at all is like a testament to small press publishing and a testament to like people who've given their life to like small press poetic community and like DIY poetic community. Totally. Um, and he was an advocate for small press publishing, you know, like, like a deep advocate for it. And I think he understood that like, that's where the real shit happens. It happens on a grassroots level rather than like top down publishing conglomerates, you know? Um, yeah. And, yeah. and such yeah. is the, the history really of like all good poetry. Totally. You know? Totally. And like, you know, I mean, you know, people like a lot of the people who've like latched onto his work, like, you know, like, you know, Matt Henriksen, like, rest in peace. Like, what, what a person who, like, dedicated his life to poetic community and, like, took from Stanford in that respect. And, like, that kind of, like, lineage of grassroots communal poetic building, poetic community building, like, that that for me is, like, what I've taken the most from Stanford. And that's what I took from people like Matt. Um, totally. So, yeah, not to get all somber, but that for me is, like, that that is like the lesson that that sits with me with with Stanford's work more than anything I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really good testament. And like there. and like just like a a vision of poetic community that doesn't pretend to be somewhere else. He was like fiercely invested in the geography that he inhabited. You know, like mm -hmm. he didn't index himself in relationship to like New York City. Or San Francisco, right? Like he was very rooted, very focused on locality and like built community in that space. And like that to me is like really fucking amazing and inspirational. Yeah, that's that's where the work is for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I don't want to kind of I was looking for like a segue into talking. Yeah, we don't about have to have one. It's your okay. book. But, uh, <laughs> I, if I think of one, I'll just say it. But sure. Uh, but um. Well, maybe I could ask this. I don't know. Because you mentioned that, uh, you know, your book that just came out, The Prelude mm -hmm. for Everybody with Action Books. Um, you said that it was, you felt like it was less maybe uh, about you in mm -hmm. certain ways. Um, do you still stick by that <laughs> when you said that? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of me in it. You know, there's definitely yeah. like poems that, like I would say a lot of the stuff that's in there is sort of like um like you know, working through what is ultimately like a subjective experience of the world, right? Um, but I would say it's maybe the first book I've written that is like unencumbered by this like obsession with like what are the limits of like representing the self in a poem, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like I, I think my first book and like my second book are like really thinking through like the confessional as sort of a, sort of a modality and they're very wrapped in like sort of the kind of like expositional description of shame. Um, 
and like how to represent trauma um, and like the question of whether like literary form is even a useful modality for thinking through trauma. Like those kinds of questions, I think were very persistent in my first two books. Um, and then I wrote this like third manuscript that never saw the light of day, which is fine. Um, but that was sort of like a transitional one um, where, you know, I was kind of just trying to figure out what I was doing and like the prelude for me, I mean, it's like, there's still me in it, but it's not as as focused on like uh confessional representation of, of of selfhood if that makes sense yeah it seems like a different voice in some ways you know like yeah in a good way in a way that's like okay i've done something now i'm gonna try and see what else i can i can do totally right? and i mean it's it, it's the first one for me where like i really feel like it's unequivocally my book also you know the first one was honestly like my first book is really working through the Frank Stanford impulse, you know, like mm -hmm. I like the choice to write a book length poem without like section breaks or like punctuation. It's like, hmm, like, did I like Battlefield where the moon says I love you or what? Like, obviously, yeah. I'm I'm like taking a cue from that. And the second book, it's like there's a lot of Tim Early there. There's a lot of Usa Berg in there. Um, and like, you know, obviously there's you know, there's Will Alexander and shit in my third book, but like there's other visible influences, but it feels more like, um, like, like, like me, I guess, um, yeah. as like a kind of, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, it feels, it feels more like my, my voice, I guess. Yeah, totally. No Stanford. You wouldn't say in this book, you wouldn't. Oh, Stanford's, he ain't ever going away. Um, yeah. he's still in there, but I think like, um, uh, I sort of like cooled it a bit on the Stanford syntactical moves, you know, like I love, I love anaphora. I love lists and that's never going to be like gone from my poems, but I feel like I lean on that so hard in like my first two books and like a little bit less in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I do notice and know that you love uh, an anaphora a little bit. I do. I love right. a list. Yeah. 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 What is it about a list that, that gets you going? Do you think it's like the, cause you just came off of a book tour as well, where you were mm -hmm. reading these poems a lot. And mm -hmm. whenever I have some stuff with anaphora in it, it does kind of build a little bit. Um, you know, they're a little bit more fun to read. And then yeah. if you read them a lot, though, you're like, damn, did I say this too many times? Or that's what I'm yeah. thinking constantly. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but how was, I guess, like reading these poems, did you develop a new kind of relationship with this book? Did it make you kind of like, on, honestly, like, like this book a lot reading it? Because I think that's ultimately, I think, a test or at least a test that I have for my own poems is like, if I can stand to read these poems and like spend time with them, then I feel good about them yeah. overall, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, and I absolutely like share that kind of assessment with like, you know, reading from a book, you like, you learn new stuff about it. I mean, for me, I think there's a lot of reasons why I like anaphora and, and kind of like the, the listing thing that Stanford does um, where it's like, you know, I, I know, and then just like a bunch of things that, mm -hmm. that he knows, um, or like I dream and then I like dream. Of, That's what yeah, I was going to say. Like, like yeah. that kind of repetition. I mean, I think what I find sort of incredible about it and what attracts me to it on just like a very visceral level is like, um, that there's like, I mean, specifically with like the, the, I dream, there's no like 
ontological primacy to it, right? Like there's no um there's no point at which where like life ends and the the dream begins. And like as you're reading through it aloud, there's no cues for like which lines you're supposed to emphasize, right? Like there's no like there's so many points of entry into like what you choose to you know to, to believe is like important or or insignificant, right? Um and that that is one aspect of like anaphoring anaphora and like the list that I just find like really uh attractive, I think. Um but certainly like yeah, with my own work, I mean, this one was a different experience reading aloud, you know, like my poems were always pretty loud and pretty angry and I'm a pretty loud reader for sure. But um, I think the sort of like points at which I'm like, okay, I need to yell, like that's less apparent to me by by looking at these these poems. I sort of had to think a bit more about how to present them because they also use the page in a much more like self-consciously visual way than like than my previous books have um but honestly I, I really enjoyed it and I didn't I didn't get bored with them um I I sort of found myself reading them in kind of different ways each time which for me like felt really good that like it, it, I didn't really feel like I was repeating the same set you know um it mm -hmm. felt like a different thing each time um but definitely like yeah shout out to to Kina for like doing child care so I can make that happen because that was like like just just like reading my poems in in different places um for me is like that's kind of what what it's what it's about you know like i'm interested in like poetry as is is movement and you know having is being rooted in a kind of locality but also connecting across a geographic space and um having a networked kind of relationship and and like for me like touring is just kind of what what puts that in in motion yeah for sure shout out to kina that's yeah. sick yeah, that's a super move. Um, it's also, Anaphora is also like kind of punk, if you think about it, right? Like there's a lot of punk songs that are just yeah. like the same. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I guess repetition, but, yeah, but Anaphora totally. too, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's where it began for me, you know? I mean, it's like, yeah, repetition is such a fucking punk thing, right? Like the Ramones... <laughs> formal approach is like write a song that's a minute long and then play it do a key change and then do it again you know yeah. and like like that i i fucking love that or i find it charming at least um and yeah if, it, if it's like, important say it twice or even if it's yeah, not important yeah. if it's cool if it's funny right. if it's yeah whatever i mean it's also just like it's it's a part of like my writing for me you know it's like by repeating shit and saying the same thing over and over again i figure out what it is i actually want to say like that's yeah. part of of my process for sure um totally totally yeah. and i see it as that too like it, it definitely is that moment and almost all the poems that i'm interested in and music too i guess or whatever yeah. any kinds of art really painting yeah are really prioritize process and make right. the process of the poem or the song yeah. or whatever it is pretty right. visible to the audience right and for me it's also like the interplay between like noise and meaning mm -hmm. and when noise gives way to meaning and vice versa right because when you repeat something over and over like the sonic qualities of it become more visible it starts to become like utterance rather than just like a container for meaning right and like that for me is like, like a pretty important way of, of like how I think about poetics. Um, and like, is certainly 
like a part of my writing process. Like I'm like, I, I always begin in the noise, you know, like that's, mm -hmm. that's where I want to, that's where I want to start. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Cause there's so much, it seems like poet poetry, you know, not to try and define poetry on a podcast or anything, but like <laughs> one of its many functions for me personally is yeah. Like trying to, either uh reconcile noise or wade through it or whatever it is let it exist uh, mm -hmm. and then just try and figure out what's actually kind of happening and i keep coming back to that like uh the stanford poem where it's just like i dream i dream i dream yeah and uh that's just a fascinating exercise in everything we've just kind of talked about too uh totally I think he kills it with that one. I don't know. One thing yeah. I meant to mention that I also kind of, since you're you're into, you know, maximalism and like big books and big poems and stuff like that. Yeah. What do you think about people like uh, just putting excerpts of the bat of battlefield places? Like that always irked me with some of the, like the bigger books that I like, like the Maximus poems or like mm -hmm. a. It's like it's got to be read kind of it kind of i wonder if it's disingenuous like as an editorial move to kind of recontextualize something that's already built inside of context you know what i mean yeah i mean it, it it's tough i don't know that i would take like a hard stance about it one way or the other but i will say that the first stanford selected that came out with the university of arkansas press called the the light the dead sea uh, did a horrible fucking handling of that. <laughs> like exactly what you're describing. They picked this like narratively self-contained part of Battlefield that has nothing to do with fucking anything. And it's like the least weird part of the book they could have possibly picked to the point that I'm like, what are you even gaining by including this? You know, like I find that disingenuous. Um, I mean, I also recognize that, you know, I, I am the kind of person that when I see like, a tome that is just absolutely impenetrable to me that to me that is like an invitation and like yeah. I, I don't mean that as like like uh i don't mean that to like pat myself on the back because i don't think that's an inherently good thing like not everybody has that relationship to large texts and i think that's fine you know like i don't um i don't think there's anything wrong with like excerpting these these big texts you know because it's like you need to learn about it somewhere right um that's yeah. sort of how i feel anyway um but it also like it miss i think it's very important that it says from the battlefield where the moon says i love you like a book length work right like you need yeah. to know that it's part of this larger thing but i mean part of what i like about something like battlefield is that it's like both easy to excerpt from and not right like you could kind of i mean there's so many sections of there's an embarrassment of riches of like excerptable parts of that book right mm -hmm. like there's so many things that you could take out of context and they would be amazing but at the same time you're never really getting the whole story but like part of why i love that book is you're never really getting the whole story you know it's like it's like a poem to a certain extent about like the impossibility of containing history and containing experience and in, in poems totally. right like we're yeah. always reading excerpts we're always reading fragments um so I mean, like why I am attracted to like, you know, big tome books of poems is like, I, I don't, and, and why I felt like, I mean, maybe this is stupid and naive that like, I felt emboldened to like publish a fucking essay about this book before I'd finished it. Like that's super embarrassing now. And I'm kind of like, 
humiliated by it as somebody with like a doctorate in literature, you know, like that's not how we do things, you know, that's not cool. But at the same time, it's like a book that like allows you to like feel that and feel like it's okay. Right. Like you can open that book up at any page and like get something out of it. And I like genuinely believe that. And that, that is like one of the reasons I think that book is so wonderful um, is that it's like, a tome that is totally uninterested in like completion. Um, and, and that to me is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a 400, 500 page book in you like coming soon? You think? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so just because I, um, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, I've written quite a bit. I think I, I would call myself <laughs> prolific, not compared to some <laughs> people, Joe Hall, who you had on here, he is, yeah. one of the most prolific motherfuckers alive like he's that, so that dedicated oh. i know i know i it seems and, like and, he's always writing like yeah he is even, I'm even not in the like conversation that. it's so yeah. it's so cool like i have yeah. a horrible work ethic i mean oh yeah i don't me consider too. this work but like right you know. no i know what you mean it's I, it's just like i don't i don't i don't write something down unless i know that i'm gonna like it um mm -hmm. which I don't know. That's I just have like a filter. That's the way that I write. And maybe that's a problem. I don't know. But Joe does not operate that way. <laughs> he he writes it all down um, and then figures it out later, which like I really admire. Um, and I feel like sometimes my poems would be better if I did do that. But I, I can't. Um, yeah. That so, yeah. I don't know. Crazy. I, I think I'm too. I think I'm too uh, driven by outside validation to make it through a 400 to 500 page book before you know what i mean without like yeah. <laughs> wanting to break it up into things you know i mean like yeah. kids in the black hole when i started writing it i was like this is going to be 300 pages and it was like 70 yeah it's a slim book you know and like that kind of says it all i feel like uh yeah um yeah i mean my books are on the longer side other than that one like my second book's pretty pretty hefty um yeah i don't know i, mean, I am sort of like working on this novel now um which i'm really enjoying it's it's not i don't think it's good but like i don't even know if it's a novel but like calling it that like i feel like gives me a little bit more freedom <laughs> to to give less of a shit about it um which has, has been a lot of fun i'm sort of excited about that project um i've just been working at it sort of piece by piece for like a couple of years now um that's and awesome. we'll see what happens yeah I'm excited to see that. When that's yeah, ready. it's fun. It's sort of like, I mean, it, it's really, you know, um, just a far more drawn out version of the kind of things I feel like I'm I'm doing in, in my, my books of poems, you know? Um, and it started as like that third manuscript that I mentioned to you that never saw the light of day. Like it started by sort of like turning that into stories instead of poems. Um, mm hmm yeah, I don't know if it's going to be anything. It's about a, a serial killer who is obsessed with Robert Frost and murders Robert Frost critics. So really, uh, working through the 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 Vermont the Vermont shit. And the book is called Vermont, also. So um, nice. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're in a lineage there of, I am, uh, of all I am. of those things. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a very complicated relationship with Robert Frost. So. <laughs> So what if, attempting to to work through that <laughs> did you get any questions during a book tour about uh about the prelude and wanting you to draw like wordsworth connections there too because you've talked a little bit about it with me but but like and i know you're in you like wordsworth for yeah for, for reasons kind of well you kind of stated it a little bit in the beginning yeah. saying that you like 
had a fascination with just like incomplete uh like kind of live projects or whatever uh were you obviously i mean you titled the book the prelude so you were kind of aware that there there was going to be that kind of context put on it Mm -hmm. whether or not what have you done with that so far do you feel like or how did you maybe when you were working through the book or writing these poems like how were you framing that kind of sure that reading yeah i mean there's sort of two ways that well, three ways I think that I that I think about it. One is like a pretty simple one, which is that um, it is a book about rural childhood and experiencing political turmoil and the way that like these accumulating experiences like turn you into an artist. And I mean, that it, it's sort of obvious, like why I would identify with it based upon those things, right? Totally. Like, pretty easy to... Yeah you know, draw a parallel between those things. Um, So that's one thing. Um, The other is that I started working on it while I was taking a Wordsworth and Keats graduate seminar, my first year as a PhD student here at Cornell. Um, And what a, what a course that must've been. Do you, are you a Keats fan? No, I mean, I I don't, I don't like dislike Keats. Um, I, I mean, I, I like Keats fine, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, I feel like people look at me like I'm insane because everybody thinks Wordsworth sucks ass and I, I get it, it's fine. <laughs> um, I love Wordsworth. I, I'm not really a Keats guy. Uh, I don't have anything against him, but he's just not, I, it's not the release. Never... I think Keats had some swag. Like he seems like a swagged out kind of guy, the way he- Yeah, around, I mean, I it's, I, I feel like I should like Keats more than I do. I mean, granted, I've also like, I've not read Keats as deeply yeah, as I've read Wordsworth, but um, I, I haven't read Keats, and I, I also I don't like the Wordsworth short poems like at all. Yeah. Like it's really it's prelude ride or die for me. Um, but yeah, that's just my opinion. Um, yeah, but yeah, taking this course, it was with um, this professor who is at once at one time like a pretty famous deconstructionist literary critic. Um, and this scholarly background was like the limit point of how she thought about literature, basically. Um, and there, so there's this scene in The Prelude um, where um, Wordsworth is in London and, you know, he's a country boy and he's in London and he's very overwhelmed and is like, how the fuck do I handle this city that I'm suddenly surrounded by like multilingualism and just nothing makes sense. All meaning has fallen apart in like the mass of the the modern metropolis, right? Um, and sees this man um, who's blind and deaf and homeless and holding this sign up with uh, a description written on the sign of how he got into the situation that he's in. And it's like a pretty famous scene in the prelude that a lot of people have written about. And we were talking about this scene in class and I tried to talk about it through the lens of disability. And, and the professor's like, no, 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 this is not about disability. This is about deconstruction and the limits of language and the limits of signification. And I loved the prelude in that class, you know, but for me, that was this sort of like jumping off point, I guess, for like thinking about my my own like dissatisfaction, my, my own dissatisfications with like the the university and kind of neoliberal institutions in general and the way that they think about literature. And that just felt like such a closed off way of thinking about it to me. And it was a text that I was already beginning to really identify with. And I was like, this is absurd to like close it in like that when it's like this text that like 
fundamentally is a really open text that like was unfinished, right? Like I think, you know, um, so that's one way that I think about it, which leads into the the third way, um, which is that, uh, you know, he revised it over the course of his entire life. It was originally supposed to be an epic that would have been longer than Paradise Lost. And he uses uh, the metaphor of a Gothic cathedral to describe what would have been the giant work. And the prelude is just the antechapel. It's just like one room of the cathedral. Um, and as he revised it, it just got like worse and worse. And like the early stuff is, is the best stuff. And he got more conservative as he got older and it just got more boring. And like, so one way I was sort of thinking about the project is like, how do you resist that desire to, uh, you know, move away from the radicalism you know mm -hmm. like how do you embrace the messiness how do we unrevise wordsworth is sort of my my starting point um but yeah i don't know i guess i anticipated more uh annoying responses to it than i've than i've gotten like um i mean i i love wordsworth obviously but i'm not i'm not a scholar of romanticism at all i make no claims to that there are many people who know far more about many contemporary poets who know far more about Wordsworth than I do. Um, and I'm fine with that. Um, but it also nope. is just in kind of the, the grand fuck you tradition of just stealing somebody's title, like the replacements titling their, their album, let it be, you know, like that's like the lineage I'm, I'm working out of. And also my first book is a stolen, stolen title. Like kids of the black hole is a song by the punk band, the adolescents, you know, like, um i i just like kind of love that move so yeah titles are titles are hard and uh yeah they should be public access for sure but no one said like too soon like you shouldn't have titled the prelude it was too soon too soon and, yeah <laughs> no one did that no no, no we haven't had it. i no. guess we've been a few years removed uh from, from the prelude yeah. yeah i mean it is public domain now which i think helps a little bit you know um you it's, it's that old uh they, i i you know i could if i wanted to just like steal words i could have just republished the wordsworth and called it conceptual i could have republished the prelude and called it conceptualism you know uh but now you're giving yeah, me ideas know. yeah i know i know yeah. um yeah <laughs> Um, I also just thought it was a great title. I'm like, damn, I gotta, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna borrow that one if you don't mind. Um, I don't know. I mean, I like on a different day, I probably could have a more intelligent answer for you than the one I gave. But no, um, I think, I think that was intelligent. I did have sure. some conversations with people during the tour where it became clear during the conversation they knew way more about Wordsworth than than I did, and I was like, okay, let's gonna yeah. rein this back. Yeah, I'm gonna let's talk about something else, you know. Um, yeah. But that's 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 fine. Like, you know, I don't like the the whole point of it for me is to not like have a mastery of this other thing, you know. So that's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, and it's a great title, and it's a great book, and Thanks. everybody listening should go grab a copy. I'll leave a cop, uh, link rather to it in the show notes, as well as all of Marty's books and this Frank Stanford essay of his that we were talking about uh, from Jackets. But you got anything you want to plug, Marty, before we go? I appreciate yeah, I you taking uh, an hour out of out of your night to, to oh, should I, I should have thought through the plug beforehand i didn't um god damn that's okay that's all uh, right maybe you can add it post-production yeah i'll add it post-production whatever i want to plug i'll just i'll just go ahead and plug i'll plug yeah just, the just... new season of uh, love is blind Vander, <laughs> don't, don't plug that any any kind don't, of reality don't plug that. Show. no 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 uh, uh 
one more thing that I was just kind of thinking about too is like you mentioned that about Wordsworth about him on that trajectory of going like you know aging and getting worse mm-hmm. and that's such a fascinating because Stanford you know I and and a bunch of other writers who died young I'm always like damn I wish they would have lived longer to see what they would create but yeah it's a slippery slope to kind of think about it like that i mean i think for me it was also like thinking through like okay what does it mean to like to have passed the the mythical stanford suicide age it's like i'm 32 (laughs) now you know like i got a kid i got a wife i have like my whole life ahead of me you know and like how do i keep that energy and not you know not start like reworking my old shit so it sucks you know um, yeah for sure i don't well, know because it's like you know there are there's great poets who like stayed stayed good or at least stayed not giving a shit which like i think is is the goal right yeah for sure for sure yeah well i think i think you're doing a great job with it with your new book and thanks tons dude. tons of more stuff coming from you soon for sure oh yeah Awesome. Well, thanks again for being yeah, here. Thanks, yeah, thanks, Evan. Yeah. And if you think of a plug, I can. I will. I can I'll let it. you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, awesome. All right. Thanks for listening, All everybody. Right. We will see you later. Bye.